I'm sure that each one of you has a story, at least one, if not more, of a time when you felt deeply and uncomfortably out of place. Maybe it was a, a location where you stood out and it was clear to everyone around you that you didn't really belong there. Uh, Papua New Guinea was that place for me. When I traveled there in the early 90s on board the uh, mission ship Dulos, I'd, I'd never before been so clearly in the minority and so clearly out of my comfort zone. I looked different than everyone else. I spoke differently. I dressed differently. As far as I know, I probably smelled different too. And one thing that, that impressed me just from a cultural, it wasn't really a cultural perspective, it was more um, the nature, the actual difference in nature there, right by the port. So looking out from the ship, just over a, a, maybe about 100 meters, there was a row of these trees. And the first time I saw those trees, I was impressed. It was, they were so unique looking because they had such huge leaves, huge leaves like this big, and they, all the leaves hung down. And I, I had never seen trees like that before. I was back inside the ship and I was working during the day and then at dusk in the evening, uh, I came out, that was during a period of time where I was working in the holds of the ship, so I didn't see daylight. And I came out, finished the, the work day, and I came out onto the deck and I noticed that all those trees, all the leaves were gone. The, they were completely bare. Well, I found out those weren't leaves, they were bats. And they were, when, when they would leave the trees, you could feel, not from 100 yards away, but from a little closer, you could feel the breeze of their wings. It was highly disconcerting for a city boy. The food was strange and unfamiliar. They drove on the wrong side of the road. And I was constantly concerned and worried that I was going to commit some terrible cultural faux pas. And while I actually ended up thoroughly enjoying my, my sojourn in Papua New Guinea, the first few days of my experience there helped me gain at least an, an initial glimpse into what the Bible means when it talks about exile. Both the northern and southern kingdoms that comprise the nation of Israel, so Israel in the north and Judah in the south, were ultimately invaded, conquered, their cities were razed to the ground, their possessions stolen, and most of their population was taken into captivity in foreign pagan countries. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about exile. By definition, it's a place and a state where the exiled people are uncomfortable. They are away from home. They are away from their own culture. It's a place of suffering and grief and mourning. Now, Isaiah was one of the primary prophets who warned Judah, the southern kingdom, who warned them of this impending exile that was coming. He spent most of his ministry prophesying that due to the apostasy of Judah, due to their idolatry and their sin, God was going to purify and discipline them through exile. But Isaiah's messages of doom were always balanced by prophetic announcements of hope. Though the exile was coming, God had revealed to Isaiah that after that exile, new, glorious, amazing hope would arise for Israel. That after the exile, God would reestablish Israel as a nation. He would give them a new king from David's line. We know who that is. 
There would be a new Jerusalem, and there would be a new purity of heart for all her people. Now, I want to draw an analogy to us today. We, the church, live in a similar state of exile. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. In his first epistle, the apostle Peter calls us aliens and strangers in the world. That's an uncomfortable description. I don't think any of us embrace that identity. I'm an alien, not, you know, a Martian alien with, you know, antenna and everything, but I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner. This, this is not my country. The world is not my country of citizenship. It's not my passport country. Just as the citizens of Judah lived in captivity in Babylon, but did not belong there, so we Christians live here, but we don't belong here. And Isaiah had the heavy, mournful challenge of prophesying the exile, but he also had the joy of looking through that exile to the great hope on the other side. And you know what? Just as in a sense we share the exile of Israel, so also we share the same hope. And my desire this morning is to make sure that everyone here leaves today with the renewed joy in the hope that we have. Now, every time we talk about hope, particularly at Advent, it's important that we define it because we use that term in our day-to-day -day conversation differently than the Bible uses it. So let's say I'm here at Calvary and I'm leaving to go home and it's 5.30 in the afternoon and I know that we're receiving guests at our home for dinner at 6 o'clock. So I text Julie. And I say, I'm leaving here at 5.30. I hope I'll get there on time. Now, we all know that what that word hope means, it's, it's an apology. I'm not going to get there on time. You know, maybe if through some incredible miracle, there is no traffic on a weekday at 5.30 anywhere between here and Zona Sul or the farther Zona Sul, and I'll, I'm going to make it. In fact, maybe a helicopter will actually pick me up and transport me there, and I hope I'll be there on time. So the way we, we use hope today is about something that we want to happen, but may or may not in fact, probably not, but maybe. The way the Bible uses the word hope is a guarantee. It's something that has already, it's been promised, but it's also guaranteed to come. It hasn't fully arrived yet. It hasn't been totally fulfilled, but because it's been given by God, it is a guarantee. So when we talk about the hope that we have as the church, or the hope that we have as Christians. We're talking about something that has not been completely fulfilled yet, but it's been promised and it's been guaranteed and it's coming. Now, the way I want us to approach this topic of hope today is by working through the Isaiah 9 passage that Gerson read for us earlier. And I want us to take note of the contrast between exile and hope. In the first two verses of Isaiah 9, we see this first contrast that hope is light and exile is darkness. 
Listen to the way again that Isaiah describes it. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And this next phrase, I love this image, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Light comforts, light reveals our surroundings, light shows us the truth. If you've ever had a child experience a nightmare, it's amazing as they awaken in the night and they're crying and they're, they're, they're fearful. As soon as the light is turned on, the fear begins to recede. It may not be instantaneous, but it starts the process immediately. The same is true for an adult. You've had a nightmare before. Some, a dream maybe from which you had difficulty awakening and it was terrible and horrible and you wake up and it's dark, but you go somewhere and you turn on a light and immediately the fear and the oppression starts to fade. Exile is like this cold nightmare of fear and darkness when suddenly over the horizon, the first piercing rays of the rising sun bring warmth and light and comfort. You know, I'll, here's another thing. I'll just be honest with you. I'd like to say otherwise, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't like camping. I, I don't enjoy it. Um, I don't understand, really, the, the principle of leaving a comfortable place to go someplace intentionally uncomfortable to force myself to suffer um, and then come back to the comfortable place again when I could have just stayed in the comfortable place. <laughs> there are some things we do for our children because we love them. Camping is one of them. Uh, but I, I, don't enjoy, I don't enjoy camping, and inevitably, when I go camping, I lie in the tent or wherever I am, and I'm extremely uncomfortable, and it's dark, and I'm just longing for the night to be over. That really is, I don't, I don't mind getting up early. I really don't. So, you know, 3 o'clock, I, I would be happy to get up uh, when I'm camping. I might as well be up as lying down if I'm going to be awake either way. But I, I just lying there and just desperately waiting for just a, a slight change in, in the lightness in the sky. Just going from deep pitch black to slightly less black or moving to a, a, a dark gray, something that there's hope, there's the light's coming, the day's coming, and this torment will be over. And our hope as Christians is that light at the end of a camping trip. The day that we can go home Light dawns, and, and as John says in, in, his, in his first epistle, John, first John, I'm sorry, as the apostle John says in his gospel, in the first chapter, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and that's a beauty of the power of light. You can never make a room so dark that it will put out a light that's shining in that room, but you can make a room so bright with so much light that all the darkness is gone. Light conquers darkness. Exile is darkness. Our hope is light. Moving on to verse 2, or staying rather in verse 2, we see our next contrast. Exile is death. Our hope is life. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Think about that image. To be in exile is to live in a place characterized and hovered over constantly by the threat of death. The shadow of death presides oppressively over the land of exile. That is what most characterizes it. Those in the land of exile are constantly threatened by death's imminence and pressure. 
But again, what does light do to shadows? It dispels and destroys them. And as the light of hope rises, the power of death and the shadow of death is dispelled. And the threat of death itself disappears in favor of life. The third contrast is that exile is grief, whereas our hope is joy. I'm confident that everyone in this room can affirm that they've experienced grief of some sort. In one way or another, you have either been disappointed or much more deeply perhaps encountered sadness and suffering. Many of you today suffer. I know this. Many of you are groaning in your souls and spirits because of lack or, or loss or illness or death or pain or separation. You have unmet expectations and desires. And yet, our hope is one of joy. In our hope, our joy is increased. Now, th this does not mean, it's not a denial of pain or grief. We don't look at our lives and say, oh no, I don't feel pain. Oh no, I don't feel grief. Oh no, I'm not sorrowful. Everything is wonderful. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when it's part of the plan or dream. Or I don't remember how that annoying song from the Lego movie goes but most of you parents do. You know, listen to these words again from Isaiah chapter 9. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now remember, this is after exile. So this is a picture of hope, the joy and rejoicing of hope that follows, that comes after that grief and sorrow and suffering of exile. The fourth contrast is that exile is slavery and oppression, whereas our hope is freedom. By definition, exile is oppressive. Exiled people are ruled by a foreign power. They have no rights. They're not citizens of the nation in which they live. They don't share the same privileges and rights that their conquerors have. And for Christians who live in the exile of the world, we face this reality. If we are to be true to our hope, then we don't have the freedom to indulge in the evil pleasures that are offered here. And this is some of the tension of living in exile. We cannot sin freely and without restraint. Why? Because we are not citizens of this world. That's what citizens of this world do. Because the Holy Spirit and our consciences prick us and they bother us. We don't have that right to embrace evil as other people do. But our hope is coming. Do you see this? What an incredible promise here in Isaiah 9 that the yoke that burdens us will one day be shattered. And that even though here and now we are still subject to sin and the bondage and slavery of sin, the time is coming when the bar of sin that rests so heavily on us will be destroyed. And sweet freedom will descend upon all God's people, the freedom from sin and the freedom to be who he has created us to be. There's not going to be any more inner oppression and conflict. And I think that's one of the things 
that I most long for is to be free from, from self-recrimination, self-doubt, self-analysis, and, and as, as the Apostle Paul puts so eloquently and descriptively, that which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I do not want to do, I do, that inner tension and conflict in the soul of the believer in Jesus Christ, that's going to be gone. There will be freedom from that completely. There will be no more temptation to sin, no more shame, no more divided hearts. David the psalmist writes, asking God, give me an undivided heart that I might praise your name. And we will all have completely undivided, so completely whole, restored hearts. Freedom will reign. That's our hope. It's interesting how Isaiah builds this description of hope through light, life, joy, and freedom before actually arriving at the foundational source of that hope. And this is actually the fifth. It's not a contrast. It's just a truth. The words that we've heard so many times around Advent and Christmas that we heard again this morning, and I think more than any other phrase, this phrase to me communicates the joy of Christmas. And they kind of send a shiver up my spine every time I hear them. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Those two phrases reveal that our hope is a person. While we long for light, life, joy, and freedom, none of those will or can be found apart from the identity and person of this child, Jesus Christ. He is the child that was born. He is the son that was given. He's the embodiment and guarantee of our hope. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again. His life, death, and resurrection are what destroyed sin, death, oppression, and sorrow. He is the one who shatters that yoke. He is the one who breaks that bar that rests on the shoulders of people. And what we have to remember and what we must be willing to share is that all those blessings that come with and through Jesus can't be found anywhere else. It's not that it's more difficult to find them somewhere else. It's like you, they cannot be found. They are only in him. There's a, a song that the artist Chris Tomlin, not Chris Tomlin, I'm sorry, David Crowder released uh, a couple years ago, I think, All My Hope Is In Jesus. That's the name of the, all, all my hope's there. There's no place else that it can be found. And the world is obsessed with seeking freedom and joy and even hope itself. But they do it while ignoring the source. It's an exercise in futility. Jesus Christ, our living hope. The sixth point or sixth contrast is that exile is anarchy while our hope is a king. After Isaiah prophesies about the birth of this child and the giving of this son, he describes what that baby will do and who he will be. 
The government will be on his shoulders. Now, friends, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you don't have the same perspective I do on this. Isn't that a relief? I mean, how much of our emotional energy do we spend thinking about and debating about and getting angry about Facebook posts about politics and government? Do we worry about it? Are we concerned about it? Unfortunately, I would say particularly in the last few years, how many friendships and relationships has government and politics destroyed? How many? And now we're given this promise that our hope, Jesus Christ, the government's going to be on his shoulders. And no human is going to have to bear that weight anymore. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's kind of a funny phrase if you think about it because I don't know anyone who would say, yes, increased government. We want more government, more and more and more government, more and more and more politicians, more and more and more laws, more and more and more taxes. We want more government, the increase of government. But, but that's only because our government is so flawed and broken and perverted because it's made up of people. But when Christ takes his place as king, the increase of his government means an increase of peace and the increase will never end. And that's an interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, we would think that once Christ reigns, like there's just peace and it's peace. But he says it, the increase of that peace won't end. So even in the, the eternal perspective, the joy, the, the, the peace, the presence, the reign of Christ will, is going to expand and grow, as will our experience of it. Jesus is king. And how often have we put our hope here, at least to a limited degree, in candidates or politicians. So we do long for change, we long for a transformation of our, of our country, and we hope that a particular candidate or a particular president or governor or whoever it may be can bring that change. But remember, no human's ever going to solve the problems of this world. On the other hand, Jesus Christ is the perfect, just king. Has there ever been, I want you to think about this carefully, especially those of you that are fond of history, has there ever been a world leader, regardless of title, whether it's king, potentate, dictator, president, prime minister, whatever it may be, that we could honestly describe as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. Never. And there never will be. While exile is the anarchy of evil, each doing what is right in his own eyes, our hope is in the king of justice and peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The one who will bring perfect order to life. And it's a reign that will never end. It's eternal. It goes on forever. Now, after going through these contrasts, 
I want to leave you with three final challenges as it relates to hope. The first challenge is this. Keep the hope. Normally we hear the phrase, keep the faith. This time I want to say, keep the hope. Isaiah prophesied the hope in Israel even when all seemed hopeless. The suffering in which you may find yourself now will tempt you to either doubt or forget the hope that has been promised. And part of the blessing of Advent is that it's a yearly reminder of the hope that's been given through Christ. For these few weeks, it brings us back to that foundational truth for us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God setting into motion his great plan for the redemption of nations. Part of the challenge of keeping this hope is that we've already received it, but at the same time it hasn't been yet completed. We've talked about this before, even as it relates to the kingdom of God, that we live in this already not yet tension. Jesus Christ is our living hope, and for those who believe in him and belong to him, we already have the benefits of this hope. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have forgiveness of sin. We have a renewal of the soul and the heart and the mind. But at the same, at the same time, we, we still suffer, and we still grieve, and we still sin, and we're still subject to physical, though not spiritual, death. And yet, also to balance that out, the, the, the blessing of the hope is that Jesus gave us each other. He built his church. He made us a family. God the Father has adopted every single believer in Jesus as his son or daughter. So we live in this tension of already and not yet. We've received the hope, but it hasn't been completely fulfilled. But a day is coming. A day is coming when it will be. And that's why we need to encourage one another. And that's, that's one thing that the author of Hebrews says, encourage one another daily. To what? To keep the hope. Don't give up. Remember the hope that's coming. Don't give up. Remember the hope. Don't give up. Keep the hope. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Keep the hope. The second challenge is this. Remember the exile. Part of keeping the hope is remembering that here on earth we are in exile. And the world is constantly pressuring and oppressing. It never stops pushing and pressing to conform the people of God into its mold. And there is a danger, actually a great danger, that we will forget that we're in exile. And we will make this world our home. 
Um, I have the very great blessing of being a dual citizen. So I carry two passports. But the laws have changed now. And for people who were born more recently, in my similar situation, born to American parents, but born in Brazilian national territory, um, when they reach 18, they now have to choose. And may, we're, we're, as a church, we're kind of in that situation where we live here, but we belong there. And there's a very great danger that we will be tempted into surrendering our heavenly citizenship and fitting into, fitting into this place of exile. When Peter calls us aliens and strangers in the world, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the next phrase is, I urge you to resist sinful desires that war against your souls. See, we all have sinful desires that are self-destructive. That's what he said, avoid sinful desires that war against your soul. We have desires which if we meet them, we will be acting in self-destructive ways. And because of the context of being aliens and strangers, I would say, broadly speaking, we could put all those sinful desires under one umbrella, which is this, the desire to fit in. The desire to fit in in this world. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced this. Those of you who, for whom Brazil is not your home or it's not your nation of, of um, descent, but as I've told my kids probably too many times, when, when we're out in public in Brazil, I say, don't talk loudly in English. Talk softly. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We don't want to, I, I hate, you know, feeling like everyone's looking like I'm out of place. So there's, there's a pressure to conform, which is not wrong when we're talking about cultures of the world. But that's the pressure that we, as believers in Jesus, undergo every day here. Which is to fit in, to not be different, to not draw attention of ourselves, to let things go by, to not give offense, so that we can be comfortable here. And one of the great challenges of living in exile is that we're not supposed to be comfortable here. We're supposed to live with tension of being in the world but not of it. So don't forget that we are aliens and strangers here, that we're different, and we should be different. Now, one last note on that. We're not different because we try to be different. That's annoying. If you've ever been around an individual who tries to be different just to be different, or that tries really, really hard to be eccentric, it's really frustrating and annoying to be with that person because it's not real. They're not genuine. People who stand out in other cultures stand out because of who they are, not because they try really hard. When you're a foreigner in another country, you don't think, okay, how, would, uh, how does a person of my culture act? Okay, I want to act like that. 
No, you act the way you are because of who you are. And so for us, if we are believers in Jesus Christ and have been transformed by his presence, if we are sons and daughters of God, if we have repented of our sin, if we've been renewed and saved by him, he is what makes the difference. So our focus is him, our hope, and he as our hope transforms us. And so we don't have to work, okay, I want to act like a Christian. Uh, how does a Christian act? That's not the right question. The question is, I want to be more like Christ. Lord Christ, how can I be like you? And he transforms us. So keep the hope, remember the exile, and here's the last point, share the hope. Most of you probably knew I would get to this verse eventually. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we can go through our lives and say, well, whew, no one ever asked me. No one ever asked me, so I never had to give a reason for the hope that I had. Part of being ready, part of being prepared is making those opportunities. Part of it is intentionally working conversations around so that it comes to questions of ultimate hope and we have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that we have. Uh, it also doesn't mean just be prepared, so study a lot. Study a lot so that you have the right words to use. That can be part of it. But this phrase actually has a lot more to do with a willingness and a readiness to do it. And I, may God create that in all of us. I'm not, I'm not there yet. But that point where every conversation that we're in, every interaction that we're in with a, with a non-Christian, that God would, would, would change us so that we're just like at the starting line, like, okay, okay, where's the opening? Where's the chance? Where, when's it going to come? Come on, God, show it, show it to me. Where is it? Where is it? I want it, I want it. I, I've, I've told you this before. Pastor Bill is like that. Pastor Bill is like that. And I, I honor him for that. And I, I want to learn from him. He intentionally takes taxis when he doesn't have to. You've heard me tell you this before. He intentionally takes taxis even when he doesn't have to. And he pays for them. Why? Because he has a captive audience. And no one's going to kick an elderly man with a cane out of a taxi. <laughs> You know, they'll say this. So he's got, I've got an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that I have. And he takes it. So always be ready, always willing to share. If our hope in Christ is light rather than darkness, if it's life rather than death, if it's joy rather than sorrow, if it's freedom rather than slavery, if it's order rather than anarchy, if this is the hope that we have, then may God inspire us to share it more and more often and more and more freely. This morning, it, it's, it's interesting how we often do not link the celebration of the communion table with Advent and Christmas, right? Well, we celebrate, well, we think of communion as being related to Christ's death, which is true. As often as we do this, we're proclaiming God's death, Christ's death rather, until he comes again. 
But if the communion table were only about the death of Christ, <clears throat> it would be lacking. It's about his death, and it's about his resurrection. It's about the, blood, the cup of the blood of the new covenant in Christ. So while our hope begins with a child who is born, it proceeds on through that child's life, death, resurrection, and future coming. Our final fulfilled hope. Let's pray. Lord Christ, thank you for the hope that we celebrate at Advent. You, Lord Jesus, you, the child who was born, the son who was given, on your shoulders rests the responsibility for government. On your shoulders rests the responsibility for redemption. We are grateful. We are grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.